Father in heaven, thank you so much for this wonderful time that we can come together again to study your word. And Lord, as we're about to open the scriptures, may you please guide us, lead us with your Holy Spirit and help us to hear your voice. Help us to understand these words so we might have wisdom to apply it to our lives and empower us with your Holy Spirit that truly you might write your words and your law in our heart this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of our parable this evening is entitled The Lord's Vineyard. The Lord's Vineyard. And before we study the parable itself, we're going to look at the background leading up to why Jesus spoke this parable. Matthew 21 and verse 23. The Bible says, And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? This text sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because we actually studied it last week in the previous parable. The priests and the scribes, they were asking Jesus about his authority. Who gave him all this authority to teach and to preach and to heal and whatever he was doing? And Jesus asked them back a question about the baptism of John, whether it was of man or whether it was of heaven. And we're not going to get into the details of that. We spent quite a lot of time last week looking at it. If you missed it, you can go back and look at it on Facebook there, on YouTube. And also, if, you're, if you want to look at the study guides and, and all the studies that we have out there, you can go to adventproductions.com and all the studies and even along with the YouTube videos are posted there as well. But at the end of this encounter that Jesus had with them, even though they're the ones that started it, they refuse to answer. And so Jesus launches into this second parable. We studied the first already. It was a parable of the two sons. And Jesus showed them that the priests, the, el uh, the, the elders, they were the second son who said he would go, but he never ended up going. And that the publicans and the harlots would go into the kingdom of heaven before they did. Because even though they disobeyed, even though the first son, which was the publicans and the harlots, said no, they eventually repented and ended up going. And they were the ones that did God's will. But now we're going to look at this second parable, okay? The second parable, Matthew 21, pardon me, Matthew 21 and verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to the husbandman and went into a far country. So this second parable comes in right after the first. Jesus doesn't leave any space to, to, for any further encounters or any more background. So we know in some sense that this parable is also related to that encounter at the beginning when the chief priests and elders came to ask Jesus about his authority. So this parable is about a householder who owns a vineyard and he does many things for this vineyard that he owns. He hedges it roundabout. That means he put a barrier roundabout it like a fence so that it would be protected. And he also put a wine press in it. He built a tower and put a wine press. And finally, he let it out, meaning he hired people to work for him. And then he moved to a far country. This is the background that we're given of this parable at the very beginning. Now, 
Who does the householder represent? Who does the householder represent? The word householder actually means master of the house. And that is none other than God. He's the master of the vineyard. Now, how about the vineyard itself? What does the vineyard represent? You know, we've seen this several times, but let's, re let's refresh our memories real quick. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. The vineyard represents what? The house of Israel, whom Jesus was speaking to at that point. That represents also the church today. But the hedging, see, he built a fence and hedged it round about. What does that represent? As we're, as we're looking into the details of this parable, we've got to understand all its symbols and what it represents. Let's go to another text. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. God had put a wall of fire round about Israel, and He said, I am the one that protects them. I am the one that will put my glory in the midst of her. So God was always the one that was protecting the Israelites when they were going throughout the, the wilderness journey and there were poisonous snakes. He was the one that protected them. But when they complained, He withdrew His presence and these poisonous snakes came and bit them. Every single time they went out to battle, it was always God that was fighting for them. He was always the one that was in charge and He was always the one that was delivering them. He was that wall of protection to the children of Israel, whether they realized it or not. But he said, I would put my glory in the midst of them. What does the word glory mean? Exodus chapter 33, 18 and 19, Moses asks this exact question. He says, I beg you, I beseech thee, Lord, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so when Moses asked, God, show me your glory. God said, I'll show you my, my, my graciousness, my goodness, my mercy. What is that? It was his character. So not only did God protect them, but he put his character in each of their hearts. In the midst of all of them, they tasted of his love, of his goodness, of His mercy and His patience and long-suffering to them, even though they rebelled against Him for thousands of years. Yet God would come back every time they turned their face towards Him. He would come back straight away and, and help them and be with them and help them to conquer their enemies. But friends, what else is connected to God's character? Let's look at something else. Romans chapter 7, verse 12, the Bible says, Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Do you see that? Holy and just and good. That's character. But you see, the Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character. God's glory is connected with His Ten Commandments. So not only was God's presence surrounding them and protecting them, but His character was also revealed to them through the law that God had given to them, His Ten Commandments. And that was given to them above all other nations. No other nation had such wonderful and perfect and beautiful laws as did the Israelites, the Jews of old. 
and that would be that hedge of protection to them from the rest of the world. And it was also a constant revelation of God's love towards each of them. Let me show you another text concerning the law of God. In Psalms chapter 19 and verse 7, the Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You see that, friends? The Bible says that the law of the Lord is perfect and it had power to change any person. It wasn't just a list and a law of commands of do's and don'ts, but in each word that was spoken to them from Mount Sinai at the very beginning and then later down, later written down with the hand and finger of God, it had the power also to convert a sinner into a saint. There was power in that and that power is still available to each and every one of us today. So even though many might think that the law seemed like was a burden to them, Jesus was saying that this was a hedge of protection to the Israelite nation. They were blessed with the presence and knowledge and power of God so that they could reveal to the wicked fallen world God's perfect character and the principles of His kingdom, which is love. So, Coming back to the parable of this vineyard, okay, the Lord's vineyard. Why did the owner build a wine press? Well, obviously, he was expecting good quality grapes from his vineyard as he grew all those vines and, and the grapes coming out, but so that he could produce high quality grape juice from it, or what the Bible in those days called wine. But what happened? What happened to this vineyard? Let's continue reading, shall we? In Matthew 21, 34 to 36, look at what happened. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did unto them likewise. Did you see that, friends? The owner of the vineyard, he would send his servants to check on the state of his vineyard, on the state of his property, and also come to claim the fruit that should have been grown by now and that the vine should have been producing grapes already. It should have been ripe already for harvest and to put into the wine press and to make that grape juice. But the workers of the vineyard, that he had hired to, to take care of his vineyard. These people that he had put in charge of his vineyard, they saw the servants coming and they took them and killed them. And once again, the owner, all right, all right, I'll send more servants to go and, and check on this vineyard. I want my fruits. I want to check on what was happening there. And once again, they would do the same thing. Take these servants and kill them. And every time the servants were killed, uh, they were sent, pardon me, they were killed. Who were the servants that God sent to the children of Israel? Well, let's look at read and look at and read another text. Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, who? The prophets. Friends, the servants of God are the prophets of God that God sent to speak to His people, that God sent to minister to His people. And many were sent throughout the Old Testament. From Moses all the way down to Zechariah and Malachi, some were 
great prophets of God, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. He, even Jeremiah, he was sent to instruct and warn the people about impending doom and to save them, to, to tell them to go into Babylon. Don't fight against them. Don't use the gold and the money that you have to, to hire the Egyptians and other people. No, Babylon will come and destroy all of them. But when he gave them these messages, they despised him and tried to kill him, threw him into a pit, into a well. They were constantly hunting his life. The Israelites, they disregarded the messages of the prophets and not only disregarded them, but also killed them. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 11, verse 49 to 51. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar of the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. You know, it was the children of Israel that killed all of God's prophets and His apostles. They were despised and hated by the ones that they came to minister to and to try and save. And so upon hearing what happened to His servants, what did the master do? When they were killing every single one of his servants, what did he do next? Let's come back to the parable in Matthew chapter 21, verses 37 to 39. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come. Let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. And so finally the master would send his son. He thought, surely they will respect my son. After all, he was the direct representative of the family. The son, coming to a business, holds all the power of the father, who owns the company, right? So surely they would reverence and respect my son. But what happened? What did we read? It said that they saw the son and they said, oh, they thought that if they could take the son and kill him, that they could take the inheritance and ownership of the vineyard, all that the master owned. It must have been obvious that this vineyard must have been producing a lot of fruit. It must have been a good piece of land. It must have been fruitful. And you know what, friends? The land of Canaan was fruitful. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. We can't imagine it now, what modern Palestine is like today, just full of dust and dirt and desert. But back then, it was green and luscious and luxurious and God had blessed this place and then He gave it to the children of Israel as a gift. They didn't have to do anything. It rained there constantly and it was just a wonderful sight to behold. But they wanted all these assets. They wanted all this land. They wanted the inheritance of the son. So now they came and took him and killed him. And friends, that son obviously represents who? It represents Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered the same fate as the apostles and the prophets of old. Time had not changed anything. Remember, this tower was hedged about. 
The glory of God was put in the midst of her. Jesus was the greatest manifestation of God's glory to the Israelite nation. Look at this text of what we read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the greatest manifestation of God's glory, not just to the world, but specifically the Israelite nation. He walked and talked with the Jews in the 33 and a half years that he lived on the earth. Yes, it was a specific location, even though he was not able to minister to the whole world. But what we see, of course, in Scripture today came, became a great blessing to the whole world. But look at also this in John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God's glory was given very clearly through Jesus Christ coming to the earth, especially to the Israelite nation. They were blessed with the visitation of God to walk amongst them, but they didn't appreciate it. They didn't treasure it. They killed Jesus, just like how they killed all the prophets that came before him. You know, when Jesus was speaking this parable, obviously he's not dead yet. They hadn't killed him yet, but it just goes to show the warnings that Jesus gave them, how he could read the thoughts of their hearts time and time again, but yet it didn't stir up any thought that, hey, maybe this really is the Son of God. No, they went out even more to kill him and to destroy him. But coming back to the parable, when the master heard what they did to his son, how the workers treated his son and killed him, then what did he do? Let's continue reading Matthew 21, 40 to 41. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto these husbandmen? And so Jesus asked this question, and they, the, the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees that were sitting around, they say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus actually asks the scribes and the Pharisees, What should be done? And without thinking, what was their reply? destroy those wicked men that, that had the care of the vineyard and give the vineyard to someone else who would produce and give fruit at the right season. Obviously, these workers were already benefiting from the fruits that were being produced by the vineyard. They were partaking of all the grapes that were grown there. And similarly, the children of Israel were reaping the benefits from the gospel and from being God's chosen people. But they never gave back the fruits to the owner of the vineyard. They did not produce the fruits in season that was justifiably asked for. And in haste to reply, as they were absorbed in following the, the parable and the narrative of Jesus, they pronounced judgment on themselves. Yes, Jesus absolutely agrees with the conclusion of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at what he says right after this, verse 42 to 44. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures 
the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringeth forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. The kingdom would be taken away from the Israelites and given to someone else. And that is exactly what happened approximately 40 years after Jesus died. Jerusalem would be destroyed and the message of the gospel was spread to the whole world. The children of Israel are no longer God's chosen people, chosen nation, a vessel to be used to spread the gospel to the whole world. They are no longer the only ones that were called from darkness into marvelous light. So God, He chose someone else to be a witness to the world because they were not doing it. They were not bringing forth the fruits that were meet according to what He had blessed them with, given them a vineyard, given them a tower, given them a wine press, hedged it about, but they didn't. They didn't produce fruits. And the Bible says that this privilege would be given to another nation. But we know that there is no singular nation on this earth today that is, is holding the blessings of the gospel. No, it's been spread to the whole world through the Christian churches. However, when Jesus said that the privilege of stewardship would be given to another and taken from them, it was not just any nation. And I, I, I should say it's not just any church. There was specific characteristic that was highlighted about who would be qualified to fill their place. What was these characteristics? It would be given to a nation that would bring forth fruit. You see, friends, it's one thing to be called a Christian and, and to call yourself a Christian, but it's quite another to be a fruit-bearing Christian. Friends, how can we be fruit-bearing Christians today? This is what the Bible says, that the, the stewardship would be given from you because you didn't produce any fruit, the Israelite nation, but it would be given to a nation that does bear fruit. What does it mean to bear fruit? How can we be part of this nation that God has called today? Well, let's start with the most obvious. What is this fruit? Let's start in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. The fruit here is the fruits of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, love, long-suffering, right? All these good characteristics that should define every Christian. You see, friends, it's one thing to call ourselves Christian. It's a quite another to act or display the characteristics of Jesus, a Christian. We should have the character of Christ. We should have the character of Christ more than just on the day that we go to church, when we're waiting in line to a bank and we're delayed, when we're in the line to a shopping center and, and we're buying and checking out our groceries, when we're servicing our cars or studying at school or, or working in our workplace. The character of Christ is not just something to turn on and off at will. Our characters are the essence, the very core of who we are. And in that core, it should be exactly like Christ. You see, the Israelites, they did not act like Christ at all. 
They were killing the prophets. They, they were filled with hatred and, and, and malice and envy for many people around them. Their characters were very much unlike Christ's, yet they claimed to be called God's chosen nation. Some of us need that change in character today, whether that's stopping lying or stealing or stop cursing or, or stop losing our tempers. We need the sweet spirit of Christ to, to fill us so that we can be kind and gentle and patient and long-suffering. That's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. And even though that should be the fruit of the Christian, but if the Spirit is dwelling in us, we will have that fruit, that character of Christ. And so many of us, we go to church, but we're destitute of the Spirit of God. You see, in order to have a character like Christ, what else do we need to be fruitful in? Let's go to another text. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. Look at this. For if these things be in you and abound, and if you look earlier before in the previous verses, it's talking about all these good characteristics. It says, They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. In what? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, God wants us to be fruitful in the knowledge of who He is. And the only way that we can be fruitful in the knowledge of God is to spend time in His Word and in prayer. You see, the Israelites had forgotten who God was. They were caught up with forms and ceremonies to the point that even the Scripture had lost its meaning. And as a result, there was no transformative impact in their lives and their characters became more and more like the world, more and more degraded. They had lost the influence of His Spirit and His Word. The only thing that can change a person into a true Christian. Ephesians even says, take the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. But what other fruits does God expect from us today? I mean, if we are to call ourselves God's chosen people, God's chosen nation, is it really any specific nation? No, it isn't. Is it any specific people? No. It's individual. But what else? Yes, we got to spend time in God's Word and in prayer. We got to have the fruits of the Spirit, His character. But what other fruit does God talk about? Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. Look at this. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto glory, and praise of God. Do you see that, friends? God wants us to have the fruits of righteousness, the fruits of right doing. That's what righteousness means. Notice what it says right after that, though. How? Did you see it? Which are by Jesus Christ. Friends, we can try to have all the good fruits that we want, but without Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. It will be an impossibility we'll be attempting something that will be not humanly possible at all. Trying to be good, trying to reflect the character of Christ, it'll be impossible unless we have Christ, unless we have His Word, the living Word, the living water abiding in our hearts, unless we have the Holy Spirit abiding in our hearts, unless we are praying, God, give me your Spirit, it'll be impossible. But let's keep reading. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Look at this that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, 
being fruitful in what? Every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Friends, though we are not saved by works, God does care about our works, how we live our lives, how we conduct ourselves. He does care about our actions. But notice what Colossians says. If we want to be fruitful in every good work, do you see at the very end there, it says what? Increasing in the knowledge of God. If we want to be fruitful in good works, if we want to have the good works of a true Christian, we got to be fruitful in the knowledge of God in the knowledge of His Word. It's clear that spending time with Christ and increasing in knowledge with Him every day, that will affect our works. We're not saved by works, but the works show whether Christ is abiding in our hearts or not, whether we have the fruits of a true Christian or not. It will transform us into this righteous Christian if we have that knowledge of Him. His Word is power, friends. His Spirit is power. And that will make us into sons and daughters of God. He wants us to be righteous. He wants us to have good works. But we can't do it on our own unless we're spending time with Him. God has given us His Scriptures, His Word, the Bible. Not just as a book of do's and don'ts. But a book, if we would process and put into our hearts and minds, we would have the fruits of a true Christian. What does it mean to be righteous, friends? Look at this. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22, it says, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness. Do you see that? Fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. Friends, if we want to have true fruit, we have to experience being made free from sin. Do you see that? We have to have victory over sin. That, my dear friends, is true holiness. It's not going to church. It's not just putting up your hand and when the preacher asks who loves God. No, it's not even standing up front and singing such passionate songs and, and crying while you sing. No, these flight of emotions don't mean anything unless you look at your life and whether you're really holy or not, whether you have fruits unto holiness. Our works and the life that we live should reflect our profession, not simply just to be turned on one day a week at church and trying to be on our best behavior. No, friends, it's got to be lived seven days a week, no matter the place or the time. He wants us to be righteous. He wants us to live and to act righteously, to experience victory. Even when you're at home and you're frustrated with your, your wife or your spouse or, or your children or your parents, how you talk to them, how you treat them, it matters a lot. But what other fruits does the Bible talk about? Maybe you're spending time with Jesus and, and, and praying and, and, and having these fruits of righteousness in your life. But friends, there's one more fruit that I want to share with you to highlight, to help you to see what the fruits of a true Christian are. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30. The Bible says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And what is that? And he that winneth souls is wise. Friends, what is this fruit that the Bible talks about? It's leading others to know about Jesus is telling others about the love of God that is burning in your heart. You see, God wants us to be witnesses for Him. 
not just to know Him for ourselves personally and keep all those blessings to ourselves, but tell others about Him. You see, the Israelite nation had received all these blessings from God, but they kept it all to themselves. They didn't share the gospel blessing to others as God had instructed Abraham to do. He wanted to bless him so that he could be a blessing to the whole world, you see? But they had, had caught up all these blessings, and then they said, all you wicked Gentiles, all you people, stay away. I don't want to tell you about God. I don't want to share the blessings of the gospel with you all. And to the point that they were so racist, they hated them so much, they didn't have the love of God living in their hearts. Yes, friends, we should hate the world in all that it is, the pride and the lust and the vanity, but we shouldn't hate the people. We should hate sin, not the sinner. The message was not just for the Israelite nation back then, friends, but it's just also just for us as well as Christians. How much has God blessed you? How much has He blessed you in your life? Can you think of all the blessings that you have received right now where you are? Can you remember all of God's goodness to you? Or has sin blinded your eyes to the very good and perfect gift that has come down from heaven to you? Every good thing that you experience, it's from God. It's a blessing from God. Or are you not satisfied with your blessings? You're trying to hoard more. Are you turning around and giving back God the glory? The rec to recognize who is the giver of all these good things. What returns have you made back to God, the giver of all these good things? Have you, been, have you been treating the claims? How have you been treating the claims of God in your life? Too many of us today are serving mammon. We're serving money, wealth, position, and pleasure is our aim, and we've all but forgotten God. We're not satisfied with our life because we compare it with someone who's richer. And so we don't give Him back the glory. We don't give back the, the, the glory that's due to Him. We're unsatisfied even though God has blessed us so much. And instead of using the gifts of God to be a blessing to humanity, what we've done is we've hoarded it up for our own selfish purposes, forgotten to be a blessing. But you know, friends, there are many out there who claim to be a Christian but who are not living under Christ's rule. We're not heeding His instruction, nor showing fruits for His glory. And instead of being a saver of life unto life, because of our claim as a Christian, we become a saver of death unto death. And we're doing incalculable harm because we are calling ourselves Christian, but we're not living like true Christians at all. And so we blaspheme God's name, we show people out there, this is what a Christian is when it shouldn't be. But friends, God wants us to live differently today. He wants us to be different. He wants us to be a blessing. He wants us to use all the blessings that He's given to us to be a blessing to others. But He wants you to know Him personally. He wants you to spend time in His Word and that's the reason why all these bad characteristics come in because we're going to church, but we're not spending time with Christ to allow Him to change and transform our hearts. Today, we need to exalt Jesus and His law again, not just for our, oh, from our own mouths, but in our hearts. It is a law that has the power to convert a soul, to turn them from sin to righteousness 
from serving mammon and riches to truly serving God, to have His love in our hearts. And this is what God wants to do. It's the new covenant, friends, Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Only as we allow God to put His law in our hearts and minds today can we bear fruit for His glory and not for our own. Only as Jesus resides there can we live a life that's full and guided by God on this earth. It's only then that we can turn from self to righteousness and the possibilities that God has planned for us in Christ Jesus. You know, sharing the gospel to other people become a dread, become a burden because the gospel is not living in our hearts. Trying to tell somebody about the love of Christ will be well nigh impossible and it can come out in dry, listless sermons or, or just forced pretense because we don't have the love of God in our hearts. Today, friends, let's heed the warnings of this parable that we might be fruit-bearing trees and a saving influence all around us, but we've got to start at the very foundation. Whoever will fall on this rock, Jesus Christ, shall be saved. If not, the rock will fall on them and will grind them to pieces. Friends, we got to be converted. We've got to make the rock, Jesus Christ, our foundation again. We've got to start in His Word again. May God bless each and every one of you. May we be stirred in our hearts to spend more time in His Word, especially on these holiday seasons, that we would not forget Jesus. We would not forget His Word, that we would continue to allow the Holy Spirit to dwell in each of our hearts, especially this weekend, the Sabbath hours. May God draw closer to you today. Maybe you haven't had that time in this past week to spend time in His Word, but today is the best time to begin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. That even now, your, 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 your grace is extending down to the deepest of our sins and the lowest of men and women. Lord, maybe this past week, we've all but forgotten you. I pray, Lord, that you forgive us. Help us come back. Set our feet upon the solid rock, Jesus Christ. Lift us up out of this miry clay and this mess that we've got in ourselves into. But Lord, help us to see that it's our own personal decisions that we make that will impact the future. And so Lord, please guide each of my brothers and sisters here. If there are any that are stuck in a web of sin, I pray that you would come to them so personally and help them to see that you're ready and willing to forgive them even now. But Lord, help us to turn to your word then, that we might have a deeper experience and relationship with you. So Father, please guide us to that end. And thank you once again for your mercy. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.